the past few months, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, so I invite you to turn to chapter 10 of that book. It's uh, page 957 in these Bibles in the pews, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This uh, section of scripture has probably the best known verse in 1 Corinthians, with the exception of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter on love. And uh, this passage has in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, Many of us heard or learned that verse long ago without any understanding of the context in which it was placed. So what I'd like to do in just a moment is is preach on this passage leading up to that verse and to tell you why that is placed where it is. So hear God's word beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to... The air blew the page closed. All right. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father, we ask now that you'd use your word, as you say, for the purpose of teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that it would not return to you without accomplishing its purpose. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a uh, clear day on April the 3rd, 1978, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. It was nice, but it was windy. Now, there were two beachfront hotels that were 250 feet uh, apart and suspended 120 feet above the ground between these two beachfront hotels was a three-quarter inch steel cable. About 250 people, spectators, had gathered to watch the greatest circus performer in the world at that time walk across the wire. His name was Carl Walenda. He had been in circus performance for over 57 years. He was known as the greatest of the great Wallendas. That's a German family that for several generations had performed in the circus. His specialty was the high wire. His family warned him that day, please not to go out on the wire due to the high winds. 
But he made the decision, which would prove to be fatal, to do anyway. And when he was about halfway across the long wire, the wind gusted to about 30 miles per hour, and the wire began to bounce, and Carl Walenda tragically fell to his death. Now, here was a man who had walked high wires countless times before, and he was confident that he could do it again that day. But his confidence, perhaps what some would see as overconfidence, led to his death. It's very easy, it's very tempting when we are greatly blessed by God and we have many privileges from God to become complacent and to become lackadaisical. And Paul knew about the dangerous temptation of complacency. And so when he closed chapter 9, if you were with us last week, the, the paragraph right before I began reading, he describes himself like an athlete, like running a race or a boxer who is intent on winning. And he's describing not only the Christian life, but primarily he's talking about his call as a missionary, as a minister. Uh, and he said he disciplines his body so that he may win the race. So now he moves from his example of not wanting them to be complacent, but instead to follow his example of striving for the finish line. He moves from that to history. Before we look briefly at some of the privileges that the nation of Israel had, I uh, know that for some of us that have been followers of Christ for, for years, maybe even decades in some cases, it, there's a tendency for some of us to become complacent. And the initial enthusiasm, if you're a new believer here this morning, you've experienced an initial enthusiasm when suddenly life begins to make sense. And you realize you can pray and communicate with your Creator. And the the Bible begins to make sense maybe for the first time in your life, as it did for me. And there's an enthusiasm that's almost unquenchable. Uh, and I remember those early days as a believer literally waking up in the morning and rolling out of bed onto my knees and beginning the very day with prayer. Such a sense there was of the presence of God and my need of things I was going through at that time, just praying for his help. Sadly to say... As we grow, sometimes, more often than not, that tends to lessen, that enthusiasm. And profound truths no longer seem profound. We've heard them so many times before, maybe even taught them to others. And as one person said, amazing grace no longer seems so amazing. We become presumptuous, and we uh, become very fluent in the things of God. Well, there's something here in this passage for you. Uh, especially if today you might say, hey, I can look back at the greater days of commitment. And I, I can look back when God was really at work in my life, but I can't say that now. Then, then this passage is for you. Paul begins with just listing some of the, the benefits and privileges that God's people, the nation of Israel, as they were in the wilderness, enjoyed. If you're not familiar with the Bible, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham about 2,000 years ago. He promised, he covenanted that he said, I'll be your God, Abraham, and to your children and children's children. Why he picked Abraham is only known in the mind of God. He didn't deserve it, but God chose this man. And from his, uh, from his ancestry grows the nation, what we call the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the, the Hebrews. 
And they ended up being in Egypt for some 400 years, and their numbers increased and increased and increased and to such that they became a threat in the mind of the Pharaoh, so he enslaved them, and they served there. And a time came when God delivered them, and he brought them out under the leadership of a man named Moses. He, he brought them out. He was going to take them to this land he had promised, even back to Abraham, this land flowing with milk and honey. And because they disobeyed God, and only two, uh, Jacob and Caleb, uh, believed God, then, then they were uh, allowed to enter the promised land. But that first generation died off in the wilderness over a period of 40 years. And so in the wilderness, uh, God provided for them, and that's what he's describing here. He says, first of all, they had supernatural guidance. He said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, talking about their, their Jewish fathers, Paul himself being Jewish, our fathers were all under the cloud. What was that? Well, God, as they were in the wilderness, provided his guidance by the means of a cloud, a pillar in the daytime that was a cloud, and at night it became a pillar of fire. So, whereas you and I struggle, well, what's the will of God for me? Should I go in that direction or that direction? It became very clear to them, here, you move in this direction today by following that, or the cloud is staying put, we should stay put right where we are. What an unbelievable blessing. That was the first one. They had supernatural guidance. But then also, they had supernatural deliverance, as verse 1 said, that all passed through the sea. When God delivered them from... The Egyptians, it was at the shore of the Red Sea. Exodus 14 says how Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And so God intervened miraculously and they passed through the sea safely. That was a great privilege. You would think, well, if I saw something like that, that would, have an imp that would make an impression on me. I don't know about you, but that would make an impression on me if I was walking through and there was water on my right and left and we're on, on dry ground. Great blessing. Third, they had supernatural leadership. Verse 2 says they were baptized in the Moses. Well, that doesn't mean that Moses had a baptismal service in the wilderness. It carries the idea carries the idea of they were identified with him. They were identified with his leadership in Exodus 14. It said the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, their servant. Fourth blessing they experienced or privilege. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. This refers to the substance that was called manna that God provided for the Hebrews for those 40 years, six days a week in the wilderness so that they were never hungry. It was spiritual meat, and it came directly from the hand of God. And then the fifth blessing he mentions is spiritual drink in verse 4. They had, they had water that came from a rock. In Exodus 17, God says, I will stand there before you at the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, he's speaking to Moses, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of, of Israel. Paul understands that the rock itself was Christ who provides living water. And so they were saturated with God's blessings. The water, the food, the, the, the leadership of Moses, the deliverance from the Egyptians...
the guidance supernaturally with his cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And so they were privileged, they were richly blessed, just like the Corinthians had been. And just as we are, if you don't come from a tradition, a denomination perhaps, that practices infant baptism, we as ministers in our denomination are instructed always to give a word of instruction when we administer baptism, but particularly infant baptism. And the reason is it's easily misunderstood. Uh, We don't mean what it means in the Roman Catholic Church, that is that it saves, that it saves the baby. We don't mean it's a christening where we're just naming the baby. So the word of instruction that if you listen closely that I or whichever minister or is administering the baptism gives, we note that what we recognize this infant will receive by being born into a home where at least one parent is a believer is these privileges of being prayed for, being prayed with, being exposed to God's word, being exposed to the community of faith and the local church. All these are temporal benefits. They are benefits that this child will experience in this life. And then we always note that we pray for the time that he or she will put their trust in the Lord Jesus as their Savior and receive the eternal benefits, forgiveness of sins, the promise of heaven, dwelling of the Holy Spirit, plus more. So there's a distinction between the temporal blessings, temporal privileges, and the eternal. What has been described here so far? Don't answer out loud. Well, you can. Temporal or eternal? Speak to me. Temporal. The leadership... The leading by the cloud and the fire, the water, the food, Moses, were all temporal benefits. They were not eternal benefits. And so how did they respond? You would think that they would say, boy, what, how richly blessed we are. We are so grateful and humble before God, but that wasn't it. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, or but, Although God had given them such magnificent privileges, the majority, most of them, it says, and this is one of the greatest understatements in the Bible, most of them failed to enter the promised land, eternal benefits. How much is most? All but two. I said Jacob earlier, Joshua. Joshua and Caleb, two. Two out of the whole group that came out. You say, well, how many came out into the wilderness? It tells us there were 600,000 fighting men. And as one professor said, wherever you have 600,000 fighting men, you have 600,000 fighting women. And then that average size of a Hebrew family, you get numbers that go anywhere from, well, there were 1.5 million up to 2.8 million in the wilderness. Large group of people. Uh, So although we don't know precisely. But that first generation that did not believe that when... When Joshua and Caleb said, we can go into the land, when they came back, the spies that had gone in to check out the land of Canaan, they said, we can go. Everyone said, no, let's go back to Egypt. They're going to make mincemeat of us if we go in there. That entire generation dies off. In fact, when Paul uses that phrase there, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's a picture, literally, it means to spread out. They were spread out in the wilderness. Literally, the wilderness was littered with corpses. That's what he's saying. 
It's that God did this. It was not simply natural death. It was God's sentence against those who had rebelled against him. Well, Chip, where's the good news? Well, we're getting ready to get to it. Why does Paul mention this and give such a vivid picture? Well, verse 6 tells us. He wanted to show us through the example of the Hebrews two things. One, that having great privileges does not guarantee that we'll have sincere love for God. And that their lives are linked to ours. These things, he says, are not to be regarded simply as history, simply just to read about or to teach children in Sunday school. They happen as examples for us. They are here for our instruction. All right, what instructions does he give? Beginning in verse 6, now he turns to the Corinthians, he turns to us. It says that we may not desire evil as they did. So one instruction is do not desire evil. Charles Spurgeon said, beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. It's our own hearts that we need God's grace. And so it kind of starts small with an attitude of just desiring evil. And then he moves from that to idolatry in verse 7. This is a second warning area. This obviously, if you've been here for the past month or two, this was a problem in Corinth. Uh, And Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 32 where the reference to eating and drinking and dancing and, and so forth is a typical idol festival. What he's describing there was what was happening when you would worship idols. Well, what is an idol? You say, well, that's not a problem we have. Uh, I mean, you don't see any graven images in my house. You don't see any wooden, uh, wooden statues of perceived gods or goddesses. Where I work, well, we know, as Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. The an idol is anything that, that takes the adoration and, and love and devotion that belongs to God. So it can be a good thing. It can be a parent. It can be a child. It can be a baby. It can be a spouse. It, an idol can be an ambition or a goal. An idol can be ministry in a church or, or your reputation or, or anything that takes God off the throne of your life and that you love more. So, yes, it applies to us. There was a poll of Americans, uh, I, I don't know the precise documentation on it, but the summary was that the two things that we want most uh, are more money and better bodies. <laughs> Bottom line. So maybe we make idols out of those things. Idols fill the society in Corinth, I won't repeat all of that, but basically you couldn't have a religious function, a social function, a business function, a political function, without some influence and some recognition of some idol in that day. That's how pervasive it was in Corinthian culture. And so he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And the Israelites themselves, they'd barely gotten out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness and they turn to idolatry. Moses is on the mountain receiving the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, comes down and they are worshiping an image, uh, a golden calf that they had Aaron make for them. Third, he says, avoid sexual immorality. There's a sequence here. It begins with an evil desire, and then we begin substituting other things in God's place, and then it results in this broad term of sexual immorality, anything that's impure. It can be in our thought life. It can be in our actions. It it, it can take any form. And he's saying, brothers, you're just as susceptible to immorality as you are to idolatry. 
And, and maybe your life on the outside would look very pure to anyone that looks at you, but what's, what do you daydream about? What, what do you think about when you're alone? Where do you let your mind go? So we're all susceptible to this. Many believers fall into moral problems because they're overconfident. Well, I know so much. I know so much theology and, and, and doctrine, and, I, and I've got my theology straight. Um, of course, we should love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course, we should learn as much as we should. And uh, I appreciate the graduate school of seminary, and I value and use a seminary education every day, but lest not any of us kid ourselves thinking the more I learn necessarily means the more godly I will be. If we could take one of those New Testament Pharisees that lived in Jesus' day, that hated him and wanted him dead, if we could bring one of them in here, we could take all of us who are elders in this church, that should be the teachers, the teaching elders, the ruling elders, and that Pharisee would shame us with his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. He would be able to chant all 150 psalms from memory. So then yet their hearts were hard toward God. So let us be careful. Let us learn as much as we can. Let us get our theology as accurate as we can, but not think that that will equal godliness in and of itself because, as Paul said, knowledge can make arrogant. Verse 10, uh, verse 9, we should not put Christ to the test. The idea of putting him to the test is just seeing how far we can go. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker years ago over on Eisenhower Parkway. I was driving in, is it Parkway? Eisenhower. And I, uh, I'm behind a truck and it had a sticker. And the sticker said, how much sin can I commit and still go to heaven? Welcome to Macon. Yeah, I, I just moved here. Now, maybe we are not so brash or arrogant to put that on our car, but how often do we think it? How close to the edge can I get? That's what he's talking about. Don't put Christ to the test. Verse 10, And nor should we complain or grumble. Back in Numbers 14, God's people in the, the wilderness, all, they grumbled, it said, against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. What is grumbling? It's dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for your life and maybe the lives of those you love. And it's a sin that God does not take lightly. We often take it lightly. We can get in the habit of just negativism and criticism and, and complaining, just complaining all the time uh, or thinking our complaining. But when you and I complain or grumble, and I'm not just talking about a concern that somebody really ought to fix this before somebody gets hurt, but just God's lot for you is just never satisfactory. When we complain, we are challenging his wisdom. We are testing his grace. We are questioning his compassion and his wisdom in our lives. And so our need for contentment should not be just on our well-being, which it, which is for God's glory. We should be concerned for his glory. And so complaining dishonors God, or grumbling does. That's why it's, it's so impressive when Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Put me in prison, and I'm content there. Put me in a shipwreck, I'm content there. Have them beat me almost to the point of death, I'm content there. Give me lots of food and a nice house and live there, and I'm content there. And I read that, and I think, how in the world that is God's work. 
that is not Tony Robbins' CDs. You know, that is God's work to produce that in a person. He can produce it in, in us. Now, I skipped over three things. Did you notice what I left off? I left off verse 8, which said 23,000 people die in one day for committing social immorality. Verse 9 said, as a result of testing the Lord, many were killed by poisonous snakes. And then in verse 10, it said, for grumbling, many were killed by the destroyer. All these things, verse 11 says, happen to teach us upon whom the ends of all ages are come. They are for our example. Now, the good news, what I would call the good news, verse 13. Now, verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 is written to people who think, I can stand, I'm confident, I don't care if the wind's 70 miles an hour, I'm walking across that tightrope. So this verse is written to those who think they cannot fall. And that's when he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, often this is just applied to humanity in general. Oh, that guy was so cocky. Do you see that football player, you know, thought he's in the end zone. He spiked the ball, and it's still three yards out, you know, and they turn the ball over. This is talking spiritually. We think we're beyond falling into some of these areas. He's saying, be careful. Be careful. When, if you reach that point of overconfidence because God has richly blessed you. Now, the second part, which is verse 13 is written to those who think they cannot stand. You say, I, I have no willpower. I have no ability. I'm, I'm dead mean when they, you know, if I'm tempted, I just, you know, I'm in trouble. Now, let me say this. The word temptation, when it says no temptation has taken you, it can be used in two ways in the Bible. One is to tempt a person to do something that's evil, to sin. The other is to be tested. You know, that God tests. So there's a, when God asked Abraham to take his son to Isaac up on the mountain, it said God tempted Abraham. And then we read in the book of James, God tempts no one. It's a different meaning. So he didn't tempt him from the sense of trying to entice him to evil, like the devil tempted, Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. But he tested him to show the purity of his faith. And so the same word can be used. Here, I think Paul's talking about both of them. He doesn't distinguish. So it may be temptation to, that causes us to fall, sinful, to, to, to pursue some sinful action, or it may be that God's got me in a test, and I feel I'm at the breaking point, and I don't know if I can go on because of the pain or the, the perseverance or whatever it is. And so if either of those apply to you, and I would assume they apply to all of us, even at this very moment. He tells us that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common. So you may be sitting here thinking, I'm the only person going through this. How can I relate to all these other people? They look like they have their acts together. If you think that, see me afterwards. We don't. And no, no one does. And so what, what Paul would say, what God would say to you, is you're not alone in this. Everybody is going through temptation of one sort or another. But then he says in the latter part of verse 13, the good news, God is faithful. 
Now the emphasis shifts to God himself, not to you and me, not to our knowledge, not to our willpower, not to our saying, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be strong, and I'm going to resist this, I'm going to flee for this. No, he says God is faithful. The attention should be on God's faithfulness. And in that faithfulness, he points to the fact that he knows how much you can bear, whoever you are in this room. The Bible says God knit you together wove you in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows your proclivities. He knows your weak points. He knows your strong points. He knows where you're susceptible. He knows what you need to make you stronger. It is specialized. It is customized. His dealing with you is not the way he deals with the person sitting next to you or the next person or the next. It is customized for you. And what does he say he will do knowing that about you? He will provide a way of escape. And this was the favorite thing, my favorite thing that I learned this week going over this passage and studying this. The phrase there, way of escape, is the picture of an army that's trapped. And at the last moment, a way out, a way of escape appears. It is the picture of the Israelites at the Red Sea with the Egyptians behind them and the sea in front of them. That's the picture of you and me when we are tempted and we think, I can't, I can't resist or I, I, this is killing me. I am going to break. I am going to fall. And God whoosh, parts the waters and he provides a way of escape. That's what Paul was saying. Now, what does this have to do with us? I mean, when you think, no one in the history, the, the recorded history that we have of the Christian faith, probably as far as privileges of freedom of worship, of freedom of access to the scriptures, you can take your cell phone and I can get 90-something different translations of the Bible with one app. You can do and have all this at our disposal to propagate the faith. When I was in Cuba on a couple of trips to Cuba with these mission teams, they would the Cuban Christians would talk sending out missionaries. And they'd say, We're in Havana and we're sending this couple out to be missionaries in Baracoa, which was at the eastern end of the island. They had one island to work with. And we look at the whole globe. And then if we say, well, that's a closed country, we think, how can we get them in anyway? Not as missionaries, but in some other way. So we have all these privileges. There's, I don't know the hard and fast data, but surely we rank probably in the top 1% or 2% as far as freedoms and blessings that God has given. American Christians at this time in history, it may not be true a few years from now, and maybe it wasn't true at times in the past. But we can read this and think, we should be careful and not think that because we have so many of the temporal benefits that that necessarily means we're going to respond in devotion to the Christ who loved us and died for us. Many years ago, our church on Wednesday nights in the month of May would have these family programs. It might be a singing group. It might be something else, a, a, a these, sometimes they'd be in here or they'd be out, outside, and so we try to use three or four Wednesday nights in a row and have things that an entire family, anybody want to, to come. It was kind of Christian entertainment, to be honest with you. Well, one of those nights, 
we had the grandson of Carl Walenda, the man I mentioned at the beginning who died in Puerto Rico. His name was Tino. I guess his name still is Tino. And Tino Walenda was a Christian. And so he came, we brought him here to Macon, and we used the stadium at First Presbyterian Day School. He set up these high poles, set up his, his high wire, and he gave his, spoke to the group, gave his testimony, and then he, you know, he would, it wasn't any 120 feet up in the air, but it was high enough. We were, ooh, ah, you know, the things that he could do. Uh, he himself had been a lifetime uh, learning that. And I guess he was in the late 30s, maybe 40 years old at the time. Well, after the program was over and, and we were uh, taking everything down, I and a number of other guys stayed behind and said, look, let us help you pack up everything and, and get all the equipment down. He was meticulous about, okay, this wire has to be this way, this piece goes there. I mean, every little thing, he was watching everything, the way it was taken down, the way it was packed. He said, put it right there, put it there. It was none of this, just throw it in a bag. And I said, I read about your grandfather and about his death in Puerto Rico. I was so sorry. And he said, the wire was not tightened the way it should have been tightened that day. That's why he died. But I was thinking, here, this guy, Tino, no telling hundreds, thousands of times he's done this. And it might be tempting to become complacent. Yeah, just throw, that, just throw that piece of hardware in that box over there. But no, it was this goes right here, this goes six inches here, this goes there, and everything packed up just right. Christian, maybe for years, perhaps even for decades with some of you, be diligent. Be diligent to use the means of grace that God has given to us in your life. Don't become complacent and think, okay, I've, I've, I've gone far enough. I'm just waiting now, waiting until the end. Don't know when it's coming, but I'll just kind of float or drift until it does. No, press on. Press on. Because God has redeemed you through Christ, because you're a recipient of God's grace, then like Paul, say, run the race and run to win. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are richly blessed, and, and at this moment, we in our hearts would like to express to you thank you for the privileges and not just the material abundance uh, but the spiritual blessings that you have just uh, poured down upon us like your people in the wilderness did and our hearts are inclined to complain or to pursue other things or or be distracted and yet we ask that you might help us to recognize that to whom much is given, much is required. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Only through him we are made right in you. Only through him we can approach you now in prayer. Only through him we can expect to spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.